Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement in Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. One of the most amazing things about Breakpoints is the community that we serve. Recently, a past guest of the podcast reached out to us to connect us with one of his colleagues, Haley Uren, a pharmacy program manager with UK Med, which is a frontline medical aid charity, and she currently oversees care in Ukraine. She's been working there for about the past seven months. Haley did her bachelor's in biomedical sciences and then got a master's in pharmacy and then did additional postgraduate work in clinical pharmacy. She is from Australia originally, and she practices in a hospital in Australia specializing in nephrology and patients with kidney disorders. But her special interests and additional training are in clinical quality improvement and disaster response. Her most recent master's was research in disaster medicine, and in fact, her topic of research focus is the roles and skills and requirements of pharmacists in emergency medical teams. So as many of you may know by now, and by way of more background for this episode, the Russian-Ukrainian War, which was previously referred to as the Ukrainian Crisis, began in February 2014. However, Russia launched a full invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. UK Med responded on March 1st and has been providing care on the ground and abroad ever since through various mechanisms of different resources. Now, we've all watched the horrors of war unfold from a distance or maybe even on our home soil, depending on where you're listening to this podcast over the past year or so, not only in Ukraine, but in other areas of the world. Unfortunately, this is our reality. And so today we're so lucky to have the very special opportunity to speak with a pharmacist who's in Ukraine in a war zone caring for these patients. And just as a disclaimer to our audience, as we get started, we did do this interview with Haley abroad. And so the audio quality during some parts of it may not be as we're used to hearing due to internet connection and things like that, but we're so, so thankful for the opportunity to talk to Haley and so excited for this episode. So Haley, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I am really excited for this conversation. Again, thank you for everything that you're doing and all of your time. I think to start for our audience, I mean, what you're doing is so unique. When I first learned about UK Med and this company in general, I was like, I didn't even know this existed, but what an amazing program and opportunity. So why don't you tell us your story? So where are you from originally? And then, you know, what's your background? Why did you become a pharmacist in general? Um, Good question. So I started from practicing. So I started biomed for my undergrad and it was kind of like, do I go into medicine? Do I go into kind of what sort of specialty? I started working at a community pharmacy and I kind of thought this, this could be super interesting. So I ended up then studying master's as a postgrad in my master's of pharmacy. I spent some time in, in a community pharmacy, but then um, quite quickly went into hospital pharmacy, which I've been with ever since and um, I guess I have progressed through the hospital as like a junior pharmacist and then a senior pharmacist and then eventually specializing in nephrology. During that time though like I I like yes I love uh, individually treating patients I really do but I also like seeing kind of the big scale changes in the hospital and also in healthcare so I have been in and out of project work for the last since I think 2017 and have kind of looked into further education and how to approve systems and processes and make things more reliable, decrease preventative patient harm. Um, and that's kind of how I 
dipped my toe in, in sort of the project work. And um, I guess from there, because I had the experience in projects in the hospital and organizing programs, I was asked to organize the medicines for my state when COVID crisis hit. So I got quickly moved to the state health emergency coordination center and said, okay, within the next week, you need to make sure we have all the right medicines that will cover us for the entire pandemic, um, which was slightly terrifying. And I thought surely someone more experienced than me should be doing this job. But we, we yeah, a, ca- a casual ask, right? Like <laughs> prepare us for the entirety of this global pandemic. Exactly. Right? It, and we had no idea what was going to hit us. We were very lucky in Australia, but at the time we, we generally had no idea. So it was a very good shopping day. I got to place a $22 million drug order for Australia, which was it was an interesting day for me. Um, and then I guess because I then had that experience working with the emergency coordination center, I, I got asked to be the program manager for the COVID vaccine rollout for the region. So again, had about maybe three weeks to prepare for the vaccine rollout to vaccine, I think, about a one million people. Um, and did that for six months to get all the mass vaccination centers open, the community clinics open, the hospital vaccination centers open. Went back to my hospital role, but knew I definitely had a specific interest in disasters and emergencies. So I found there's a Master of Disaster Medicine that is with the University of Piemonte in uh, Northern Italy and also the University of, uh, in Brussels and Geneva. It's a collaboration Master of Disaster Medicine, which is endorsed by the WHO. And then whilst I was there, I met the CEO of UK Med, which is a non-government organization, a charity organization to provide response, healthcare response around the world for disasters. That's amazing. And so for our audience, because I just learned about this when I was put in touch for this podcast and reading all about it. So for our audience members that might want to learn more, you can go to www.uk-med.org to learn more about this fantastic organization. But how did you, so you met the CEO, you're like, this is awesome. You have this training and experience in emergency preparedness and disaster planning. What does your current job look like then? Do you still practice at your hospital in Australia or have you moved exclusively to Ukraine? How does that work? I'm very, very lucky. And my hospital have been very, very supportive of allowing me to keep my job and my, uh, as my substantive. <laughs> and they have given me the time off to be in Ukraine. So I officially live in, have living in Ukraine since last December. Um, and I'm in touch with my, with my hospital back at home. I don't want to give that up. I really love my nephrology team, but at the moment I think I'm best placed in Ukraine, um, at least for a little while. And where in Ukraine are you living? Are you allowed to tell us? Yeah, so Ukraine, this is coming from an Australian. Ukraine is a very big country and it was shocking to me how large this country is. And we have races across Ukraine. So I feel like I'm constantly on the train traveling from east, west, north, south. So we have um, bases in the east, which is closer to the front line. So um, in Dnipro and then, you know, I may be traveling you know, to Kharkiv, to Poltava previously. Um, I spent a lot of time in Lviv. So I've spent some time in Chernivtsi. So, and then you at odd times go up to Kiev. So yeah, it's it's all over the place. I've seen, I think I've seen more of Ukraine than I have seen of Australia. 
<laughs> so I was going to ask next what a typical day looks like, but it sounds like there isn't a typical day, which quite frankly tracks with those of us in healthcare, whether you're in a disaster preparedness situation or not, right? It seems like there's always something different. But can you tell us a little bit more about as a clinical pharmacist, what are you doing in Ukraine, especially if you're visiting all, it sounds like all different kinds of care centers, hospitals and region. What does your work look like? So it's, it's changed a lot. So when I first moved into Ukraine, I was supporting mobile clinics. So essentially within emergency medical team, you have a type one response, which is like a GP, a nurse, a psychologist, a community health worker that goes out to areas that may have insufficient I guess, primary health care for the population due to either infrastructure damage or the, the healthcare workers may have moved to different countries or different regions because of the conflict. So I was working with the mobile clinic teams and providing them the right medicines to be able to give to the patients that they seek. And then there was a bit of a request, just a serendipitous request. Two years ago, in 2021, the Ministry of Health put out an order to Ukrainian hospitals saying you must hire a clinical pharmacist and that clinical pharmacist uh, must then set up the antimicrobial stewardship. And so the hospitals, there are a few hospitals that have started to action that order, um, but then they didn't really have anyone to guide them as to how to do that. They didn't, clinical pharmacy is absolutely a new thing in Ukraine. There are many, many, many yeah, community pharmacy, pharmacies, but the actual role of a pharmacist inside of a hospital is very, very. And so I received a request to support one of the hospitals and I've been working in the hospital since then, supporting them to establish an AMS service. That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because, I mean, quite frankly, I think some of our listeners, even in the United States, in 2023 are still in infancy of starting stewardship programs in certain care centers, especially more resource limited centers. So where did you start then? If this, it's a big ask, right? Start a stewardship program and especially with limited resources. So what are some of the things you did initially? Yeah, it was a very confronting request. What's more daunting, give <laughs> vaccines to a million people or start a stewardship program? Um, Probably the stewardship program, right? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God, it's, it's hard to say. I guess like any when you're implementing programs, you're kind of following the same methodology at each time. You really want to define your define your situation, define your problem, and then measure it. And then so you have your improvement science methodology that you can utilize. And I also relied very heavily on the WHO document, and they have almost a how-to guide of setting up an in-microbial stewardship program in low to middle income countries, which I found very, very useful. And then I had the order from the Ministry of Health to support what actual indicators they want to be looking at and what reporting should be on it. And a couple of, I guess, more of those essential items that the Ministry of Health will be involved. And I, I can only, I guess, take my hat off to Ukraine to be looking at this during such a critical surge capacity time to be prioritizing this. Like you said, it's quite advanced for them to be trying to set this up in a time where resources are low, there's infrastructure damages, there's, you know, a tidal wave of, of war-winded patients. So yeah, I, can, I guess I can only admire the hospitals for focusing on this. Absolutely. It's an amazing commitment. And 
I, that segues nicely into where I wanted to go next, because I do think we have a lot of members like yourself that may have a primary specialty, but a strong interest in stewardship and infectious diseases. So we're a part of the space together. And so we're all versed in infectious pandemic preparedness now after COVID-19, whether we wanted to be or not, right? All of us were put in that position of figure it out when the world seems to be crashing down around you. Mm-hmm. I guess, fortunately, most of us are less versed in emergency preparedness, particularly as it relates to war zones. So what kind of skills have you had to leverage as a pharmacist supporting Ukrainians right now? Anything from, I I can't even imagine, but like you said, patient surges. I imagine there's constantly the ebb and flow of supply and product and drug shortages. Um, What what kind of things do you deal with on a daily basis? Um, So usually I would say the most the biggest thing that I'm dealing with on a daily basis is just being extremely tired and oh. having having to wake up every night um, due to missile missile alarms and uh, having to I guess shelter. So you always have this baseline exhaustion, and then you go into the hospital. You have your morning meeting, and with the uh, we are piloting a program program in the surgical department, and then you are just you just have the the I guess, hugest range of patients that you could possibly imagine. And hugest range of conditions, hugest range of infections. Like, it's, it's, it's shocking. It is, it is shocking coming from Australia where the acuity of patients, but I thought were high, high, high acuity patients were nowhere near what I'm seeing at the moment. So I guess in every day you kind of have to start fresh and start an each patient as a fresh patient and you know, there's no, there's no themes, there's no trends. Yes, there's, there's the typical bacteria that we keep seeing every day, but um, range of conditions, you always have to start fresh with your knowledge with every patient. In Ukraine, there's not so many resources that they can use. So I know in my hospital, we have every resource under the sun um, with, from anywhere from journals to, um, you know, your medical, medical, I guess, programs like micromedics and and things like that. And then we have a whole department of people that we can ask and get advice from. So it's it's a little bit isolating in Ukraine, not having that that close network of people you can ask. You don't have the resources you can look at. You don't have the laboratory testing that or you don't have the microbiology, like you can't identify genes with the bacteria. Like you you just has to kind of look at the patient and treat the patient maybe like in the old days um, based on their clinical symptoms and their, if they're going if they're improving clinically. So um, and then the, the like you said that we have antibiotics that sometimes we have them sometimes we don't. Sometimes the patients will need to pay for the antibiotics they can't afford it. What do we use next? Um, we did have an electricity issue earlier in the year but now that has resolved which is which is good for um our cold chain um but i guess any 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 sort of issue under the sun i probably have experienced it wow thank you for sharing all that i mean honestly just going back to the first thing you said about just being sheer exhausted because you're not even able to sleep comfortably i mean i can't even imagine and again thanks for everything that you're doing um do you mind me asking how many pharmacists are you working with right now? So you're are you the only pharmacist from UK Med that's based in Ukraine or is there a team of you? I'm the only one. 
young and okay. Adam. Yeah. So originally got hired for more of stock management and it was just lucky that I am a clinical pharmacist by background and had the right skill set to be able to go to hospital. Um, we have a, I'm working with a Ukrainian clinical pharmacist who has started working in the hospital six months ago and she's learning. I mean, if you think about the skills required for intensive care or transplant or these really specific specialties, she's learning it all from scratch in English from me. Um, so wow. I, I can't say yeah. highly enough of, of having her and having her as the, I guess, the point of contact between the patient. Uh, me and the rest of the multidisciplinary team. Yeah. Wow. So you have one other pharmacist and then, and, and so that's it of all the, you said you travel all over the country and go to all these cities. There's only one other clinical pharmacist you work with. Well, it was kind of a shock actually, right? We, UK Med didn't go into Ukraine specifically to treat infections, um, but right. that has, you know, we uh, held a conference recently where 120 of stakeholders from hospitals across Ukraine met together to discuss about, you know, to look back on the year that was and then to kind of plan for the next year and to identify the main challenges in the hospitals. And it's the it's the infections, it's getting the patient really quickly through the trauma pathway from point of injury through to reconstruction and early rehabilitation without complications. So we, it's, it's, it's been quite eye-opening and there's not many NGOs working in their trauma pathway like UK Med are. So whilst we didn't really know that clinical pharmacy was an essential part of our response previously, it's now very, very clear that this is something that Ukraine is needing help with. And the more hospitals I meet with, the more, the more their eyes light up that, oh my gosh, you're a pharmacist. And I don't know. I don't, I've never felt that in my life. Like pharmacists are obviously a critical component of the team, but to have someone being like, we need a pharmacist in our hospital was, was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Other key stakeholders you're working with then, so I imagine physicians, surgeons, nurses, are there infectious diseases specialists that you work with frequently? It sounds like infections are your biggest problem, and I definitely want to tease into that more. We struggle with that in the United States. I mean, there's just not enough at, infectious disease a specialist to care for all the patients with specialized needs so what's that like that's that's exactly right so we have microbiologists medical microbiologists and we also have epidemiologists and i'm sure there are infectious disease specialists in ukraine i'm sure there are but um few and far between yeah okay so let's talk about the horrific infections you're seeing and then and how you triage these patients so you're one person and it sounds like you have another pharmacist counterpart, and then, you know, physicians and nurses that you work with and surgeons. But how, I mean, it sounds like you're covering many, many hospitals all across the country. How do you triage what patients you're going to look at that day or support? Or what is that process? So, yes, I am working as manager of the hospital program at the moment. Yes, I'm working across the country, but specifically setting up the AMN service in one hospital for now. So wanting okay. to pilot it and make sure we're doing a really good job of it, measure it, make sure we're getting good outcomes before moving it to different hospitals. Yeah. Can't really keep up, for example, setting up this AMS service in one hospital. I know that there's other hospitals that are just waiting to set up that service in their hospital as well, but I don't want to spread myself too thin. I want to focus and be completely there for the pilot pilot site um, before 
before bringing on members of the team, bring on new members and transferring it to other, other hospitals. But we have nurses and surgeons and microbiologists and IPC specialists in different hospitals, but as a pharmacist, I'm working specifically with one hospital. Okay, cool. And that, I honestly, I think that makes good sense, right? That's how we would do anything. You have to pilot it, figure it out, and then and then spread it. There's always going to be people to help. I think what you're doing is amazing. So what are your goals? What do you want to, you're going to change the world. It sounds like you already have, but what are your, you are, I think it's incredible. So what are your system changing goals for this hospital pilot? What are you trying to do here that then you can then spread to other hospitals in Ukraine or all over the world for that matter? Because this is, I mean, this is methodology that could be applied, right? Yeah. So I guess what's really important to me is that an improvement science methodology is followed and it's not just throwing mud at the wall and hoping it sticks. So what's really important is that we're following evidence-based implementation of this program and making sure it's fully incorporated into business as usual before taking the focus off and moving into another hospital. I want to make sure that we're seeing benefits and I, I guess I owe it to them and they, they need the help. So doing it properly is really, really important to me. So essentially, we have just finished all the baseline measurements and the gap that we've identified is that the Ministry of Health have released a surgical prophylaxis and biotic guidelines, which is amazing. We want to make sure that that's implemented and getting used in the hospital. We have started working on the antibiogram for the organization and making sure that that is, rec- you know, that data is accurate. And so working very, very closely with the microbiology team and IPC team on that and making sure that that information is available to the clinicians, because there is no point collecting data if the clinician then can't utilize that data to change the practice. So that's really important. Then working with the team to set up the input guideline, making sure they have the right resources to be able to prescribe the antibiotics correctly, which has been a bit challenging and that was I guess for me, almost like number one priority, making sure that they're prescribing the antibiotics at the right dose at the right frequency at the right time, and the right timing, stepping down the orals, et cetera. Um, then we can start looking specifically at treatment guidelines for the conditions that we're seeing. So your surgical site infection through to your pneumonias in ICU through to abdominal infections, spinal infections, we're seeing a lot. We have a, you know, a huge incidence of um, open penetrated fractures. So making sure that we're using the appropriate antibiotics for those dirty wounds that we're seeing from the, the very frontline type of areas. And then through to conditions that are my worst nightmare, which is the necrotizing fasciitis and spinal epidural abscesses um, and the vasoaxillarium. You know, the head, the head infections, which is just, yeah. it's just a lot. They're and horrible. It's, just, it's yeah. just, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. I can't imagine. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly fractures, trauma wounds, head wounds, neck fash. Mm-hmm. These are horrific infections. Mm-hmm. So I, we were talking about this a little bit before when we were prepping for this episode, but our audience needs to hear this. Talk to us about the microbiology you're seeing as you prepare this antibiogram. I'm guessing it does not look as friendly as it does in Australia. And so what are the kinds of infections and troublesome multidrug resistant things you're seeing? And what do you want 
the people to know about life in Ukraine right now? So this is the extreme difficulty with Ukraine, that it already had extreme antimicrobial resistance before the war. And so the war has just exacerbated this, this situation. The two most common bacteria that we're seeing is Clobesiella and Acetobacter. And it, they're resistant to pretty much everything. So it's, I feel like this is my war. This is my war against these two bacteria. Um, it, I feel like it's in every single wound. Uh, you know, there are times where I am happy to see an MRSA. Um, I'm happy to see, I'm happy to see right. it. It's the gram negatives that are just a daily struggle that I just, you know, I read, I'm reading every day. I'm reading the most up-to-date scientific literature. I'm reading IDSA guidelines. I'm reading every single piece of information that goes on to PubMed um, to try and get some tips as to how to do things differently because we are struggling with, really struggling with these two. Um, and there's often times where we just don't know what to do. So it's, yeah. a, it's a big problem. And I guess try to find some new strategies or I guess different ways that we can, you know, optimize synergism or we can optimize the way we're dosing and I guess novel, novel, novel strategies. But I feel like if I'm not kind of looking at these horrific, horrific infections, I'm probably reading literature to try and figure yeah. out different ways to do things. I mean, it, you're, what you're describing is exactly correct. It's like war before penicillin was invented, right? Infections, antibiotic-resistant infections are incurable cancers, and you will die from them. If, and antibiotics are so amazing when they work, but it's so horrific when they don't. Thanks for sharing that. What is your approach? What kinds of things are you giving to these pan-resistant infections? I love hearing you talk about dose optimization. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows it's something we focus on a lot. Can we use old antibiotics in a more optimal fashion to yeah. get more out of them kind of thing? But what, what kind of strategies are you utilizing? I think the IDSA guidelines have been my best friend, to be honest. So I've been using the strategies that are in there. Um, I, 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 I like to think it's not one size fits all. Like, I, you know, I... Gosh, what do we do? I guess use anything that's susceptible, right? <laughs> yeah, but even sometimes, apparently, like you, are, you're getting back to absolute basics. So, for example, we have a patient will arrive at the hospital, and they may have under, they may have gone through four hospitals before they reach this hospital. They've been prescribed all different antibiotics across, you know, everything that you could imagine they would already received, whether it was appropriate or not. It's another question. And then you just have to start from fresh. It's such a multidisciplinary approach. First point of call is to go in for surgical debridement because getting that dirty tissue away is super important. A good thorough debridement. Um, making sure you're doing the correct tissue sampling, which has been a big thing, a big education thing for me is, is making sure that we're not just doing pus swabs um, and treating based on that, that information. And then that tissue sent off to the microbiology lab where our microbiology team are assessing the samples. When the patient is out of the operating theater, then we have to imply our empiric therapy knowledge, depending on 
the location of the infection and what type of injury the patient had and obviously where the patient has come from, whether that was specifically from an injury related to the conflict or whether it was from a blast injury, for example, or whether it's part of the civilian population or even the internally displaced people. We utilise the the IDSA guidelines a lot. That's been really valuable because I know that in those guidelines is how to treat those really difficult infections. So that's the type of information we can utilise. We try and get a bit of a guide from microbiology as early as possible, whether it's gram negative, gram positive, an indication as to what type of bacteria it is quite early. Then we also use any scientific literature that has been released, any really good high quality publications that have been released over the last 10 years because this bacteria is just rapidly changing. Then what's super important is also our nursing colleagues. So making sure that the patient, when they're coming out of theatre, if they are still infected or if they have been infected with an MDRO, that they're isolated with the other patients with that same type of MDRO. And our IPC team is really critical for that. Our surgical nurses are just phenomenal. They are treating these wounds with really good strategies. For example, Eusudomonas using the acetic acid dressings making sure that they're using the right antiseptic wicks, for example, in our pin sites that may be infected. So essentially, it's just a really multidisciplinary team approach to treating these really, really difficult patients. Um, I guess it's interesting, like, you know, reading all about the different um, the different types of Klebsiella and the different gene expression, and we don't have any of those resources available to us. So, um I don't know just through the history of what we've been seeing, you have to immediately jump to the CRE guidelines because they're not sensitive to, to any of the cover genomes. And you're just like, you know, I'd listen to see your podcast from the background and it just made me smile that like, you know, using supper beam. And I'm like, oh, bless, I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's cute, using supper beam. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and we don't, we, we have a CRE to episode too, if you want to, okay, to maybe I'll look <laughs> um, and even like, thinking about, oh, bless, like, you know, I wish we could be doing MIC, but we can't, we don't have that equipment, that we don't have that technology here. So it's about just, and I feel like sometimes like just, I'm like, uh, having to do AI learning and me as like the AI constantly updating my information based on every single patient that I've seen every you know, over the last couple of months and trying to tailor it. I don't know. Like, I don't have any answers to be, to be, I don't have any answers. I, we, we just use the information we have at hand and we try our best. Yeah. I think that's the answer though. I mean, that's all we're, that's all we're all trying to do. And I think it sounds like you're doing a phenomenal job. So it's great perspective though. I mean, different places have different micro resources, different lab resources. I mean, honestly, that first stab of stop swabbing the superficial wounds and go deep, it, you're probably saving a lot of lives there, right? Because goodness knows what's on the superficial surface. We see that here too. So I think it's fantastic. And and thanks for sharing all that because it is really interesting. And um, I'm also a big fan of just giving the maximum tolerable dose at any given time. So if you don't have MICs, don't yes. fret. We would just we would just give full dose even if we had the MICs. So I totally support you. But that is great perspective on. And it is. I mean, you should give an empiric drug that's likely to be active. And so if you have 
50% CRE, then your empiric drug should not be cefepime. You are That's correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you um, know, making sure um, that we're just treating the patient, um, not relying on but not treating the the bacteria, not treating, I mean, yes, treating the bacteria, but not treating the blood tests. Um, and like, yeah, specific microbiology, treating the patient, just doing what I can. I think it's awesome. I think this is wisdom beyond years that many, many people should hear. So I'm so excited you're sharing it. All right. So it's really hard to find a light in a lot of these challenges, right? You have a lot of extreme challenges that many of us can't even fathom, but you're doing really amazing work too. So what was your most rewarding experience in this past year or so? Uh, I think just having the opportunity to work and set and it's like really you know, and yesterday in Ukraine. As a pharmacist, you know, I've, I've done a projects, but I don't have been very specific to utilizing pharmacist skills and combining that with project management skills. So for me, just having the opportunity to set this up in Ukraine is has been really exciting, and I feel really honored to work with the Ukrainian health workers because they're extremely resilient, and every day they're just getting up, and they're just, you know, they're just trying their best with the patient. They are very open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And that ego that we, I know all of us would be familiar with the hierarchy and egos and hospitals of clinicians, but it's not like that there. They just want help. They want, they want to do things in the best way possible. So having being able to work with them side by side is, I feel extremely honored. And also, you know, with the clinical pharmacists that I work with, um, I just find her incredible. So then that's like the achievement that I feel is just being a part of the team and working with them to do our best for the more wounded patient. Sounds like a phenomenal culture and people are the heart of what we do. So how can we help? What can listener, what can everyone who just listened to this do to support your efforts and the efforts of the people in Ukraine? I guess number one is to recognize that this, what is happening in Ukraine is not isolated in Ukraine. We have these infections and these bacteria of, that are affecting the Ukrainians, but these Ukrainians also will be traveling. They will be uh, maybe refugees. They will, that bacteria isn't going to stay in Ukraine. So the, what is happening in Ukraine is a global issue. And what... I guess UK Med are doing is is working with the Ukrainian health workers and working with the Ukrainian government and to improve, I guess, and to optimize treatment of patients in Ukraine. So um, I know that uh, donating to UK Med as um, it's a it's a charity, a charity government organization, is really helpful to making sure that we can continue the program and continue bringing multidisciplinary team members and, and, and experts to Ukraine to be able to support them because whatever we're doing in Ukraine will change just long term. It's not just this acute band-aid. It's working side by side so we can change the way we do things in, in this country. Um, and so donating through the Ukraine Med is very, very helpful. And I think that's the best, the best possible way to be supporting the work that we're doing. Got it. Okay. And so everyone who heard that, if you want to donate, we are including the link to donate to UK Med specific to the Ukraine efforts. 
in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on your computer, on your phone, what have you, click on the episode, go to that paragraph and find the link to donate. If you are so inclined, we would very much appreciate it. And with that, the time has come for our Breakpoints faithful listeners for the I Feel Nerdy segment of the podcast. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for the panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topic quirks or fun facts. And so for today's, I feel like we have to dive into the most unique or craziest infection you've seen in your time at Ukraine. We've talked about doing a lot with a little, which is really just so incredible. I'm so impressed with you. What patient story amongst, I'm sure, hundreds stands out to you that you want to tell us about? Um, this one was, oh gosh, I would never forget this patient. So I was in the hospital on a Saturday because I feel like I'm a bit of a workaholic at the moment. And just by chance, I was speaking to one of the surgeons who, she mentioned that one of her patients had kidney failure on hemodialysis. And my ears perked up because that's my, I guess my background is working with kidney patients. So this patient, um, she showed me a picture of this patient's abdomen. And it was, it was quite intense necrotizing fasciitis. And I thought, you know, given how vulnerable and how, I guess, how, I guess, unstable the health is of, of patients with kidney failure, I, I thought immediately, I didn't, I just didn't think that we could do anything with the patient. She took him to the theater, she debrided the abdomen, she removed the fascia. And sent that off for testing. We started on imperative treatment for nephritizing fasciitis. His hemoglobin, I think, was through the, through the floor. This patient was an internally, internally displaced person, so had very little resources and certainly couldn't afford medication such as your erythrogrine agents. So his hemoglobin was really low. Everything that could have been happening with this patient was happening. And then the microbiology report came back and it went MDR, Proteus, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, and Pubacter. And I just thought. Just those what? four, huh? Just, just those four. His sugars were dropping. You know, we couldn't keep his sugars up. Yeah, he had no diabetes. He ended up having a small tumor in his brain. His, it, I just. I just thought, like, I've seen one necrotizing fasciitis in my life since, and that person had returned from a cruise and got it via coral, I think, in, in like, the Pacific Island. And to yeah. see this patient and think that he on hemodialysis and he had four MDRs and we couldn't take his sugars off. And it's just, I just thought, like, this is, like, this is not Australia. This is not, I'm not in Australia anymore. Like this is, this is beyond. And he, you know, he actually, he gave it a good go despite him seeing his entire abdominal fascia. For me, that was super, super interesting, like very consuming. It's the type of patient that you think of 24 hours a day and you dream about and you're monitoring almost every single blood test result. You're speaking to him, asking him, how is it going? Because he was in and out of intubation, which was remarkable in that. And for me, I will, I will never forget, I'll never, ever forget this patient. And I guess how many people were involved in trying to get him, get him through this infection. So that for me was super interesting. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And 
okay, I know we're at the end of the pod, but I have to go back and ask one more question based on that patient story because we didn't specifically touch on this. And I think it's so important for people to understand. You mentioned that this patient was internally displaced, and this happens in every country all over the world in intermittent times of conflict. But particularly in Ukraine right now, you have people leaving the country, which, of course, are not the patients you're taking care of, but the people that stay but have to move from their home to a different region of the country because they've lost their home or any other terrible tragedy. So how do you approach those kinds of patients? What resources are in place for them in the hospital setting? I imagine it's akin to someone in the United States that maybe doesn't have health insurance or is homeless or what have you. So is there like structured programs for these patients or is this just on your list of challenges for for the way these patients are approached? So the Ukrainian government are very good in that they recognize this huge challenge and these patients get free healthcare so they don't have to pay oh, wow, that's for amazing. the surgeries they don't have to pay for the medication or the equipment and consumables which is very good um they are also providing idp centers which is helpful um but i guess you know, it's it's remarkable that attitude of Ukrainians. They just let's keep going. Let's let's you know, I'm okay. Every you know, I they're they're fighters and they have this sense of um, I guess I can't describe it any any better than resilience. So they will still not probably seek as much support as could be offered. Um, yeah, I guess. What uh, it's hard to put. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't even know if I've said that right, but um, no, I think you did. I think we have a sense of it. I think I can just describe it. Sounds like a very phenomenal culture making the absolute best of the most horrific situation. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here today to explain it to us. I've learned a ton. I know our listeners will as well. And thank you again for all that you're doing. Is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we wrap up today? Any final words? I think when I know I'm I'm guilty of this in that if you've tried something in for a very specific patient and it hasn't worked, it's still helpful that you publish that information because it could be people like me looking for things that don't work as much as looking for things that do work. So if you're kind of thinking, oh yeah, we didn't get the result that we were looking for for this necrotizing fasciitis patient. If you could still publish it, that would be really helpful because that information is critical when we have these extremely challenging patients and we don't know what to do. We want to take the learnings from what not to do as much as the learnings from what to do. So I guess if people are wondering whether they should publish, please do. I love that as a final parting gift. And for all of our editors and publishers and all our other listeners out there, there is value in negative results. I think we all struggle with that because it feels like, oh, this isn't worthy, but there's so much value in having good data to say what not to do as well. So excellent ending words. Thank you so much. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. And again, if you want to donate, we have the link to do so in the show notes. So please look at that and check that out. This episode today was hosted by Aaron McCreary and Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary and Jason Polk. This episode was produced and peer reviewed by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Dr. Steve Smoke. 
And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.